This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. Hebrews chapter 12. And we'll begin at verse 4. I'm going to read. And we'll read down to verse 11. I'm so used to giving people time to turn in their Bibles, but everybody just powers something up, I think, these days. Hebrews chapter 4, I mean chapter 12, I'm sorry, beginning at verse 4. It reads, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Would you join me for a word of prayer? Even now, Lord, I pray that you would come. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. I pray, Lord, that you would love someone with my words. I pray for Pastor Jeff, where he is ministering, that you would give him grace and power through your spirit as he ministers, Lord. I pray, Lord, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart that is inclined to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This particular Father's Day is very special for me. It is the first Father's Day in 26 years that I have my father uh, with me. For those of you who don't know, my father had been in prison for the last 26 years. My dad was arrested when I was 15, convicted when I was 16. I became a Christian about two months after he went to prison. I never known what it was like to be a man and sit with my father and have a meal or to talk to him before I got married or to share with him the joy of holding my daughter when she was born in the hospital. I hadn't got to experience any of, any of that. And so I was so excited over the last few months to know that my father is coming home. And we talk a lot on the phone, but to have your father there. And I remember one of our elders at our church said to me, you might be excited about this, but when your father comes home, you're just going to revert back to when you were 16. Because as you were missing your father, you were missing some part of you. And so this past Monday, my father was released down in Virginia. Some of my family members drove. They took my oldest daughter. They wanted to pick him up. And um, he came home, spent the day with them. I didn't get to see him. He said he was going to call me. We had talked before he got out. We made all these plans. Um, Tuesday came, and I hadn't heard from him. And so I was like, all right, well, he's going to call me. He's just visiting family and getting settled. And then Wednesday, I didn't hear from him. And then Thursday, I didn't hear from him. And by Thursday, Friday, I started having these feelings. Well, hasn't he called? Aren't you excited to see your son? All these feelings coming up, all these fears, maybe even a little bit of anger. I have other family calling and checking in. I have even people from work that I know. They're like, I heard your dad's home checking in. And so my phone is like, I got work, I got family, and I got scammers calling me. Uh, you know, My phone, mo most of my calls say scam likely. You ever have that in your phone? But the scammers calling you. And so by Friday, I'm just like, what's up? I don't know how to reach him. Why isn't he reaching out? Saturday morning comes. I'm getting just scam calls. And I get a notification on my phone that says my mailbox is almost full. So I 
call in and check my voicemail. All these messages. And I check the, the voicemail. First one that goes off. The person says, E, it's your pop. Answer your phone, man. I, I thought it was a scammer. <laughs> I spent all week sending my dad to voicemail. Because I didn't know it was him. All week, I was having a conversation with myself about the father who I was looking for. All week, I was preaching to myself fear, anger, rejection, all these things without ever even talking to the man. And how foolish I felt when I finally heard his voice and I called him and talked to him. And I had to humble myself and apologize. I didn't even tell him all the stuff I was thinking. Was just, Pop, I'm sorry I didn't answer the phone. <laughs> I thought she was a scammer. Have you ever had a season in your life where you struggle to hear from God? And because of all the things that are going on around and inside of you, you start having a conversation with yourself where you start to make judgments on God that you know that are not true. But fear, uncertainty, and doubt can have a certain way on you where you start to doubt God's goodness. Because if we're truthful, it's, it's real easy to say, Jesus saved me. It's a harder one to say that he loves me and he's walking with me when everything in my life doesn't make sense. It's hard sometimes to, to, to walk that sanctification road and go, I know God is loving me through all that's happening. I guess I'm by myself on that one, that, that sometimes I, I struggle to feel like a son of God because I feel like a victim of the world. I can preach myself into victimhood real easy. Let things go wrong on the job and then things go wrong at home with my wife and let me feel like the kids aren't grateful for me being a good father and all of a sudden God is not doing enough. I am suffering. Why won't anybody help me? Woe is me. And it's in moments like that that I need to remember, we need to remember that in Christ we have a perfect father. Because of Christ, we have a compassionate, tender, loving God who cares for us and is never an absentee father. But if we're not careful, the world will define God for us rather than we define the world through the lens of our father. We live in a time where everybody's trying to redefine something. People are redefining marriage and gender and roles and even God. How many times do I hear a Christian talk about the universe? How many times do I hear people say, you know, the universe and, and, and how, you know, you reap what you sow and, and, and karma is going to get you. Professing Christians talking about the universe or the most high. But the centerpiece of our faith is the reality that we are children of God. That I can call God Father. J.I. Packer gave uh, some comments in a book he wrote some years ago. He said this, he said, in, this, in the same way you sum up the whole New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. Packer says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. He goes on to say, if this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. I've met Christians who understand blessing more than they understand the blesser. I've met professing Christians who know all about blessing God's goodness, giving, offering, anything they can do in church to kind of earn God's favor, and never really boast in the fact that no matter what I do, I'll never qualify for more love than I have right now. That was a good place for amen. I'm trying to make you Baptist today. If you didn't know, if you're non-denominational, you're Baptist by default. Look at all the beards. Y'all are, y'all are Baptists. <laughs> and so for the time that is mine, I want to share from this, this thought, this point. The power to live victoriously lies in remembering who God is to us through Christ. The power 
to live victoriously lies in remembering who God is to us through Christ. I want to guide you through a couple of thoughts that we should remember as we consider the fatherhood of God, as we consider who God is for us in Christ because of Christ for those who call ourselves Christian. The first thing that I want to think about with you to consider is firstly that God in fathering us positions us in Christ as sons. Let me say that again. God positions us in Christ as sons. Meet me in verse 4. The, the Hebrew writer has been giving a set of exhortations to uh, the recipients of the letter. They, they have been persecuted. They are a group of Jews who converted to Christianity. They have a countercultural life that they are trying to live. They are being persecuted. They are trying to make the most of it. It's almost like if you plant a church and you bring together all these different kinds of people from different backgrounds. They're trying to make sense of the gospel and make much of Jesus in the culture, and they are being persecuted for it. And so the writer has been working since chapter 10 until now to cause them to run on the race that is set before us. The, the writer is trying to encourage them not to give up or apostatize because they are dealing with the temptation to mix the gospel with some other stuff. Because the pressure is saying, you are Jews, you know, you need to observe certain rituals, you need to observe certain rites, you need to do certain ceremonies if you're going to be right with God. So they had that pressure, but then they probably had the internal pressure of saying, look, we're getting persecuted by people, I really don't need this. I don't like this church that much anyway. They don't sing the hymns that I like. Like, it's really just not, I'm not vibing with it. And, and, and so when, when verse 4, when the writer says, in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. He's saying a couple things. But first of all, how we think about sin is something that was happening internally and externally. And it's easy to read over that and just spiritualize it all. But they were dealing with systematic and structural sin. And I'm being careful for the buzzwords because somebody's going to call me woke. I promise I'm not woke. But they are dealing with sin in the form of oppression from the outside of the church. They are dealing with sin in the form of unbelief and the temptation to add to Jesus or to leave Jesus behind for something else. And they are struggling against this sin, the writer says. And, and he's actually moving from, if you know, chapter 11, it's that hall of fame that where he calls out all the pillars and all the heroes of the faith. And he says, we have this cloud of witnesses and all these great things. He's saying, consider Jesus, run on. But now he turns to you shame as a device to motivate them. See what he's saying in verse 4, he's saying in your struggle against sin, you haven't gone as far as you need to go as a Christian. Because he was just talking about Jesus who went to the cross, who, Jesus who endured shame and scorn and hostility, and he endured it for the joy that was set before him. And he's saying, now, how are you getting weary and you ain't even been crucified yet? Because when we are called into Christ, we are not called to comfort, but to a cross. And God says, yes, your life should be so cheap to you that you would die for Jesus, that you would die for the witness of the gospel. And, and he says, so in your struggle against sin, the word struggle, it means to fight agonizingly against something. And to, to resist, it's, it's a word that really gives you a metaphor of like a boxer. So if you get the imagery right, the writer is kind of saying you are standing in the ring against sin and you are absorbing body blows and it's hurting you and you about to give up. And he's saying, are you really that weak? It's like a verse I really enjoy in the book of Jeremiah where the Lord spoke to Jeremiah and he said, look, if you can't even keep up with the footmen, how are you going to run with horses? The power of the gospel is for all of us to run with horses when life gets there. That when it gets hard and we're agonizingly fighting against sin in all its forms inside and outside of us, that we just don't give up. Sometimes the best testimony you have is that I didn't give up. It ain't about that you conquered, you beat the sin. I love it when I can say, I used to struggle and God brought me out. But sometimes it's just that I'm still praying and trusting Jesus. I'm still praying and trusting Jesus to save some of my hard-headed family members. I'm still praying and trusting Jesus to mature me past some of the issues I've got in my life. Praying and trusting Jesus to make me a better husband and to keep serving my wife the way he has 
called me. All of these things are a matter of faith, and on any given day, I can screw those up. And so it takes faith to keep on coming back to fight sin. Let's define sin really quick. I used to catechize my daughter, and we used to just say sin is not being or doing whatever God commands. Um, but then, of course, I heard Tim Keller, and he made me feel stupid. Um, let me give you a definition from Tim Keller on what is sin. Tim Keller says, sin isn't only doing bad things, it is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. And so in our time, just like in theirs, there is an idol behind every struggle. There's an idol behind every political issue. There's an idol behind Ukraine. There's an idol behind how we handle the elections. There are a ton of idols that our culture loves to celebrate. And we are called to be a countercultural people who lift Jesus so high that it becomes peculiar to people who worship something else. So the, 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 there's no modifier to the type of Christian I am. So when I come to the church, I am Christian. I'm not a black Christian. You're not a white Christian. You're not a female. You're not a, a gay Christian. There's no such thing. You can't prefix the gospel because you lose Jesus. We are called to hold to Christ in such a way that he stands out above all things. And they were slipping away from it. Leonard Ravenhill was an old preacher, lived a long time ago. He said, you could sum up Christianity in three words in verse 2, where it says, looking to Jesus, that's Christianity. But you can sum up sin in three words in verse 5. Have you forgotten? Wherever sin enters in, somewhere we lost track of what God said. Somewhere along the way, we... We knew what God said, and we compromised it for what somebody else said. Then we twisted what God said so we could do what somebody else wanted to do. Then we forgot what God said because we didn't like the conviction so we could go live the life we wanted to live. Everywhere there is unbelief, there is usually a falling away from God's word. We live in the most biblically illiterate society you have ever heard of. We got more Bibles and sermons and CDs. We got all that. Well, y'all ain't got CDs anymore. I got CDs. Um, we got all of that. And yet we have people who can't describe what the Trinity is. We have pastors who don't even believe in the infallibility of Scripture. And so the Hebrew writer is saying, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Now watch what he does after verse 5. In verse 5, he goes on to quote from Proverbs. He's quoting from Proverbs 3 here. He says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. But wait. Before we even get to verse 6, this is Solomon. This is from a thousand years ago. Isn't it amazing that as the writer is trying to deal with people and problems of this day, he reaches back and gives them an old word? The reason being is because the old word is just as good today for new problems. The problem is we always want to turn ourselves into types of spiritual junkies that look for someone to give us a new word, a new revelation, and God is saying what I gave you is good enough. The problem is when you try to rejudge it and add some other stuff and you want somebody to just kind of preach you hot. I think some of the worst drug dealers in Philadelphia are preachers. Because it's real easy to sell hope to people. And you can build a church off of it. You can get people coming in and you just tell them, keep coming, keep giving, keep serving. And you can conjure up a gospel message for that. You can do your altar calls and play the piano nice and you can play on their, on their feelings and you can cry in the pulpit. I'm not saying you shouldn't cry. I cry. But there's some that just, they know how to turn it on. For many, the gospel is a business and not a ministry. And so what he's letting them know here is if you understand the word that was spoken to you, you would understand what you are enduring is not as orphans, but as sons. You belong to God. 
And then he goes on in verse 6, quoting from Proverbs 3. He says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The point here is that he's illustrating that if God is fathering you, it's not because you were born a child of God. It's because God has adopted you into his own family. It's important to get that because we live in a day where people try to universalize God as God just being everyone's father. And we're all just God's children. That is not true. In one sense, God is the father over all creation, and therefore he is a father over the neighborhood of man. We all have our neighbors who we are called to love and to suffer for. But in the gospel, there is a brotherhood of the saints. That is a different relationship than how we were born. All of us are born under Adam, under a curse, receiving judgment if we were to die in our sins. And so what God does is he works to save us and bring us in to Christ. So much so that verse six says, the one he disciplines is the one he loves. So in other words, God's love is no different than his sanctification in your life. What had to happen to get you where you are now started with the Father drawing you to Jesus. Because Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. But then the Son has to redeem you. We're very familiar with that. We know the cross passages. We know John 3.16. But then the Spirit has to do a work of regeneration before we're called sons. Romans 8.15 says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. To be fathered by God is to be transformed by God, first of all. Jesus has so dealt with God's wrath that was headed towards you that there's no room left for condemnation. But there is a need for confirmation. There's two types of suffering. This confirming suffering and condemning suffering. In other words, confirming suffering is where God sends me through trials to confirm that I am his own. God will sometimes, knowing you the way he knows you, take you through a divine paternity test where he's going to show that his characteristics, his spirit is working in you. And then there are others who live through a condemning suffering. They are condemned. They are children of wrath. And normally, we look at it as they live in an easy, good-to-go life. But you don't know what's going on in someone's heart. The Bible says in Proverbs, the way of the transgressor is hard. You can't just live in sin and be okay. you got to constantly hit mute on your conscience. you got to constantly mute God. you got to constantly say no to the pricking and prodding of the Holy Spirit when you hear God's word. Beloved, I want to let you know the best thing we can ever say about ourselves is that we've been adopted into God's family because it means that God knows you at your innermost and still loves you. He still makes the choice to save you and to bring you close and intimate to him. Let me illustrate a little bit. So as I, over the last 18 months, I've started working with inmates and ex-offenders who are coming back into society and helping them. And you have guys who want to look for jobs and others who want to start businesses. I just love it. Some of the most ambitious men that I've met are, are confined. They've got dreams, they got goals, and, and I'm like, they're motivating me. And so I met several different men who I've got to know during their time, right before their release, and God's blessed me with an opportunity to work with them. And so about a few weeks ago, um, I got an email from one guy. He's like, hey, I got a friend. I'll call him Larry. Um, my friend Larry, man, he wants to talk to you. He's got some ideas. Um, can I get him in touch with you? I go, okay. You know, I'm very busy, but if, if he gets in touch with me, I'll work with him. Larry sets up for uh, him to be able to call me, and then I get a phone call about two weeks ago. And, you know, if you get a call from a correctional facility, you get a little message. This call originates from a correctional facility. Press this little zero. They get a little warning message. And I say hello, and the person on the other end goes, hey. I was like, Hello? Hey, hey, what's up? Okay. He said, this is Larry. He said, man, I've been looking for you. You're the one that's going to help me get out of here. <laughs> All right, my brother. Um, are we talking about, like, legally getting you out of here? Like, you know, because in Philly we have some prison breaks. Like, tell me what exactly are you talking about? 
if you want me to help you. He says, man, they got me in here on some crazy stuff, but um, I want to talk to you, and if I could trust you, I'm going to let you help me. <laughs> it's like, I'm not lying. Um, and I'm listening to him, and he told me he got these ideas, and he wants me to contact people from Shark Tank for him and, and all this stuff. I'm, I'm not lying. And he's like, you're going to help me with this? We're going to get the money. You're going to help me get out of here. So I, I went on the computer, and I looked up the offender lookup, and I put his inmate number in there. And it brings up like all the charges for his conviction. But at, at the bottom of the list, there was a hyperlink that said next. Um, <laughs> and so you click next and it went to a whole nother page. I was, oh my Lord. Okay. Um, his brother's working with some stuff. I mean, it, you know, you got to toggle between 25, 50, 100. I, it was at least 20. I said, whoo, um, that's him. And, and, and we dealing with all that. Let me be honest. As I saw his record, felt like there wasn't much I could do for him. Because as I saw his record, I started to think, what kind of issues would drive a man to do this stuff? And has he been rehabilitated? Uh, is he just trying to get out and not, not serve the due penalty for what he's done? I don't know what I could do with this man. All of us need to thank God that Jesus is nothing like me. Because every one of us, when we came to God, he pulled up your record. He saw it. He clicked next. And next, and next, he saw the stuff you did. He saw the stuff you've been thinking about doing. He saw the stuff you're going to do, even though you said, I love you, and you ain't going to do it no more. And he knows you're still going to do it. And yet, in his power and his might, seeing all of your and my scandalous sin, says, I know I could do something about this. I know that if I get a hold of him or her, I know that I can change them because I put them there. God is not surprised by our sin. He's not surprised by the stuff happening around us. He is completely, 100%, absolutely sovereign over the sin. You think you did bad. Imagine what God would let you do if he took his hand off of you. And so he sees all the list of your stuff, prints it out in PDF form, and nails it to the cross. And says, I will never treat you based on the stuff you did. Now, other people may do it. Other people may judge you, and some rightfully so, because some of us have been some scandalous people. And God says, no, as far as the east is from the west, I'm not treating you according to what you did, because I'm going to change you from the inside out. What did Paul say in Philippians? For it is God who works in us both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. What is God doing when he's disciplining us? He is training and teaching and transforming us to look, think, and act like Jesus. And, and, and let me say, so don't spiritualize that. Because you'll go, well, God is teaching me to pray more. Uh, God is teaching me to come to church on time. Also, God is teaching you to manage your budget. He's teaching you to eat better. You know, why is my gout flaring up? God's taking you through a season to let you know you need to eat better. You need to take more walks. You need to manage your money better. You need to manage your communication with other people better. You need to stop being crappy to people at work. God works in tangible ways so we have tangible fruit in the world. I'm, some, somebody missed that. God is disciplining you, not just spiritually speaking, but he's using all the stuff in your life to show you areas that he wants to either drive some stuff out or put some things in. He loves you too much to leave you where you are. And so what will he do? He'll put friends in your life to hold you accountable. And if you're fortunate enough, he'll let you get married. That's going to show you everything that you need to know about how bad you are. <laughs> and then he's going to bless that union with children. And then you're going to see how badness just comes right from you. <laughs> and it gets amplified over time. He goes, oh, those are my children. And God says, you see what it's like for me dealing with you? <laughs> and now you get to be humbled because your spouse reminds you of your stuff and you got to love your children through their stuff. And he loves you through it. There is never a moment where God goes, I don't know if I want to keep this one around. Never. And so if you're here and you don't know if you belong to God in that way, you don't know that you're adopted, you know you're a part of a church or you've been coming to church, but you don't know if you are in Christ. You need to understand there are children of wrath and there are children of God. You need to repent and be born again. 
that God says, look unto Jesus, look unto God who came in flesh as a man, born of a virgin, dealt with all our sin on the cross. And here's the good news. Listen, it didn't just stop at the cross because if all Jesus did was die for sin, you'd still go to hell. Because all the cross does is just bring you back up to zero, but now you need a perfectly full account to get you where you need to go. And so Jesus gives you all his righteousness, so now when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. That's the best offer I've ever heard. Because I couldn't trust the best 15 minutes I ever lived to get me right with God, and God says, I know, I'll get you right myself. If you are here, submit to him and be a son of God so you have the assurance that no matter what's happening, it's being used for your good. You don't have to wait till the end of the sermon. You don't have to pray this certain prayer. What do you do when you mess up and you go to your father? You say, I messed up. Would you forgive me? Would you save me? Would you change me? And for those of us who belong to Christ, we need to understand we all struggle against sin on every level in Philadelphia. And your sanctification is for the good of the city. I read a book this year that said, your sanctification is for everyone but you. It's not for you. It's so that you would bear fruit for other people. Maybe God is tearing you up on the job because he cares about your witness. Maybe God cares so much about our apologetic in the church that he tears us up and spanks us in a divine way so that we don't go out here and talk about a Jesus that we don't live up to in the world. Maybe God is chastising us because he's trying to reprove and correct us because we don't honor his word the way we really should. Didn't Jesus say, I'm, I'm the vine, you're in me, and my father's the vine dresser. And what does he do? He comes along and he prunes you. And the problem we have is sometimes we pray orphan prayers, asking God to give us back the stuff that he knows is poisonous for us. You ever ask God for some stuff, some people, some things, some jobs that you know was not good for you? But you quote that one verse, you thought it was from Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, he know what I want. And you say, God, please make this happen. If you give me this, I'll tithe. I'll come to church on time. I'll help Caleb with whatever he wants. Just let me have this. Let me have her. Let me have him. Let me have the car. And God is saying, if I give it to you, it'll ruin you. So if you're going through and you're asking God, and you're looking for his help, don't lose patience with God in the struggle. He's disciplining you. If you look through this text, you see the word discipline over and over and over and over. The word is paideia in the Greek. It means three different things. There's three different kinds of disciplining um, we can get from God. Number one, it's, it's training, right? Uh, number two is instruction. And the third one is correction. So on the one hand, sometimes God can be taking us through something to train us, to, to develop a different habit, to develop character, to develop integrity. Uh, other times it's instruction from his word, giving us a chance to live out his word, to walk by faith in his word. I'm amazed at how many people will read the Bible and never really have a promise that they're trusting for what they're going through. It's like, I got to cling to it because I know stuff just wears me down in this world. But then for correction, his word is there to correct us. You got to ask yourself, how submitted am I to God's word? When I hear the sermon, when I'm at the Bible study, am I really looking at this and saying, how am I measuring up to this? What is God trying to show me into this? How do I live this out? We need to wrestle with that with each other. And we need to wrestle with that as a church. Somebody say amen. We need to get to the place where we stop doing this quiet quitting thing at church and start coming together and loving people. Y'all know what quiet quitting is? They started talking about that after COVID, where people would just go to work and they're there, but they're not really doing work. Before COVID ever came, people were quiet quitting at church all the time. That's the person that comes to church and really doesn't want to do much at church. They do just enough for you not to bother them. But in their head, they say, if one more thing happens, I'm out of here. We got a lot of people in church who are one foot in and one foot out. And God is dealing with us and he is disciplining us. And we feel like I'm bitter because of what's going on. And it can't be because God loves me. So I'm ready to walk out of this place. I know a lot of Christians that say they got a relationship with Jesus and no church. And I get it. Sometimes you got to look around. There's all... Some kooky places. Trust me, I've been through church hurt. But when a person loses their faith in the church, something's going on with their relationship with Jesus. You can never be comfortable having a head and no body. You can't be comfortable taking in church from, from your bedside watching on TV. Imagine if somebody invited you to a wedding. You go, I'm not going to come. I'm going to just watch it on YouTube. That'd be crazy. Some of you were like, yeah, I do that. I'm trifling. That's... <laughs> 
I can't make eye contact with certain people. But, but remember God, remember, remember God has positioned us in Christ. But then secondly, I'm, I'm trying to move quicker. God grows us according to his purpose and not our own. He grows us according to his purpose and not our own. As we move through verse 7 and 8, you just see this word discipline over and over. And if you're one of those people who marks the Bible like I do, mark how many times you see discipline. Underline it. See what he's saying there. But verse 9, he says, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? Then in verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. There's two things that are working out here. Well, firstly, in verse 9, the writer is making a comparison between our father in the flesh, our earthly father, and our spiritual father, who is our God and father that cares for us in Christ Jesus. And his argument is simple. Your earthly father, with limited resources and limited knowledge, deals with you based on what he knows. And he may be doing good or bad depending on how he feels. Sometimes he's dealing with you wisely, and sometimes he's just tired of you and deals with you in his anger. And that's applicable to moms and dads. Sometimes we lose our patience because we don't, we don't know how to deal with people that don't submit to our rule. And he says, if, if you look at your parents and you'll celebrate them on Father's Day, you'll celebrate your mother on Mother's Day, how much more so when you consider who God is and love him for that. In other words, God is not limited in resources like earthly fathers are. God knows all, has power over all, and sees you and knows what it takes to get you from you to looking more like the you version of Jesus Christ. And so what he does is he loves you, he draws near to you by his spirit, but he puts you through situations that drives the Egypt out of you on your way to Israel. God takes you up out of Egypt, but he's got to get Egypt out of you. Somebody used to say, you could take somebody out the projects, but you got to get the projects out of them. Now y'all start to get it better. You, you could take somebody out the hood, but you got to get the hood out of them. You got to work on people. And God is saying, I know what I'm doing in your life. You don't understand, but I know how exactly to do it and how to work it so I get the most glory and it's the most good for you. And so the text is the father of spirits. In other words, this term is to say that God is transcendent. He, he is more than just how you would think of a spiritual father because God is the definition and model of father. We could never take our own definitions and raise them to heaven and say, here's what a father should be. God says, look at me and base your definition on me. I am the father of spirits. I rule, I create, I establish, I tear down, and I have authority over it all. God has absolutely 100% authority over you, your life, and every detail in it. You don't own the house. You're a steward in the house. You don't have cash. You're a steward over cash. And God has preeminent right to do whatever he would. And so what the writer is saying to you and I today is that the power to live with God through discipline is to submit. He says, be subject to the Father of spirits and live. But then he goes on to verse 10 and has a purpose statement. Watch how it reads. For, or in other words, he's, 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 he's given an argument to support what he just said. He says, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Or some of your translations say, so that. It's the purpose statement. It's the purpose clause. The reason God takes us through all the discipline is not for comfort. It's not for blessing. It's not for wealth. It's so that you would be holy like God is holy. But it begs the question, what do we mean by holiness? Because we can mess that up real bad. Is it holiness is I don't smoke, drink, or chew, or hang out with those who do, and I'm all good, right? You think to yourself, I ain't smoked a joint in 10 years, so I know I'm holy. <laughs> Not necessarily. Firstly, to understand holiness, you have to understand God. God is absolutely holy. That means he's other. There's no category for God that we could reconcile with other things. God is nothing like us. He has to reveal himself, or we would never figure him out if we went on a search. He is 100% other, holy, set apart. But then also he says, be holy as I am holy. How are we going to do that? 
I mean, it's the same God who said in Matthew 5, you have to be perfect. God's standard, which is never lowered for us, he says you have to be perfect. Amen? Here's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that the gospel demonstrates to us that God himself provides the very holiness and perfection he demands of his children. Watch, watch the logic unfold that God who is holy before there ever was an earth, before there was you, before there was time, had a conversation within himself and made a covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son, whereby the Father would send the Son to redeem people who weren't even born yet. And then God creates man to be a mirror, a mirror of him, to be a, a spitting image of him in morality and ethics, in justice. And so he makes man and puts him in the garden. He gives man Eve. He's like, whoa, man. And they are there communing with God naked and not ashamed. But then man exchanges God's goodness and glory for their own glory to set themselves up and to push God out. But it results in wilderness for Adam and Eve. Are you tracking with me? That they are now put out of the garden. They don't have communion with God. God is in holiness. Adam is not because he's got shame and he puts on fig leaves. And then over time, through the annals of history, what does God do? He doesn't say, Adam, you got to save yourself. He says, I knew it. I planned on it. I made this covenant before there ever was a star or moon or sun, and I'm going to save these people. I'm going to save all the elect who I have saved from the foundation of the world. That should make somebody happy today because it's letting you know there's nothing you can do to disqualify yourself for something you were qualified for before you were ever born. It is to say that God in his mind orchestrated and, and made this redemptive historical plan that he has, not just for you, but for all of creation. And so he sends Jesus as the last Adam, not the second Adam, to enter the garden of Gethsemane where he would deal with, where he would struggle against the sin that was condemning us and take the wrath that was meant for us on the cross. Here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. It says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Talking about Jesus. Saying, I will tell, your, tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And behold, I and the children God has given me. When was the last time you embraced the thought that Jesus is my brother in a way? That, that he came and paid the price and gave his righteousness to make me a, a God-caller outer, to say that's my father. Romans 8.29 says, For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, brothers and sisters. God wants people who love to call him father. He wants us strategically weak so that we lead on him in such a way that it glorifies God's redemptive plan in our life. How many times and how many places right now in our lives are we trying to seem sufficient when God is saying, child, be weak? How many of us are sitting on our testimony because God hasn't brought us out and we're afraid to let people know I'm struggling, but I'm still trusting, not knowing the testimony is you're struggling, but you're still trusting. How many of us are sitting on that and not sharing it and letting it be known that I don't know how to figure out life and I'm hurt and I'm wounded and yet I see the beauty of Jesus Christ and it's more precious than the healing that I've been asking them for. See, Jesus entered into God's joy after the resurrection and now he calls us into the same. So in other words, holiness is related to joy and joy is related to holiness. You can't say you're a holy Christian just because you don't sin and you don't enjoy God. Because Jesus was moved because he loved the Father. The Father loves the Son. The Holy Spirit loves Jesus so much, He tired of looking at you looking all ugly, so he wants to make you look at Jesus so he has something good to look at. And so because of this volcanic erupting love in the Godhead, they want us to join in to that. All the saints of the ages, all those who were martyred, all those who, who gave everything for Christ, they entered into his joy. And so in a sense, what I'm kind of saying is, from here on out, all of us need to learn to be a little bit more selfish. Actually, very selfish. We all need to get to a place where we say, I only want to do things that maximize my joy. 
that I only want to do things that make me enjoy God. So I'll serve you if it's a way to enjoy Jesus. I'll give more if it's a way to enjoy Jesus. I'll help plant churches if it's a way to maximize my joy in Jesus. I will go to the mission field and die and give my children for God's sake if it will maximize my joy. That is what leads to holiness. It's not just being rigid and legalistic. Holiness flows from joy. Joy flows from holiness. God says, I want you to be partakers in my holiness. I want you to reflect it and share in it. And you know what happens when that happens? You start to change the world outside of your doors. Some of us live in Babylon and we like, God, take me to the kingdom. Build it in my house, but not on my block. You remember when Israel, they were taken out in Jeremiah 29? You know, we, most of us, we know the chapter because we know the one verse we like to quote. You know, I know the plans that I have for you, and I don't even apply that to New Testament. Well, whatever, you figure that out on your own. But if you read the whole chapter, God let them know, listen, you've been taken out as exiles, and where you are, I want you to plant vineyards. I want you, I want you to set up businesses and homesteads, and I want you to bless the city right where you are. Here's why. Because you, my people, are my plan A for society. We can't say, God. Please put someone in the White House who loves you and give us a mayor who and God says, I want to use the church. So there's no, nothing wrong with voting. There's nothing wrong with having the candidate you want. But if your faith is in that more than what Jesus is doing in the church, you need to repent. You need to celebrate what God is doing in the church. You need to love how God is raising up testimonies. Like Josh, putting Josh on this pedestal in this sermon. You go, Josh, he turned red in the face. Okay, <laughs> see? That's what we need to celebrate. Because that's how God is changing the world. The problem why we don't like it is because it's so slow. Real change doesn't happen overnight. We all looking for a revival and God is looking for renewal. We're like, God, just come down, send flames of fire, change Philadelphia. And he's like, nah, I'm going to send some of y'all to be cops, some of you to go to law school, others of you are just going to be faithful where you are. And we're just going to change things two generations from now. And we're like, Jesus, I don't want that. He's like, I'm not listening to you. What great love God sends our way. Embrace that as a church. That as we live in this wilderness, that the kingdom of God is present right now in us and through us before God brings the literal kingdom to earth. Stop trying to get to heaven. Start bringing heaven down here. Start asking, how can we be a foretaste of things to come in our own church and on our own blocks? And I'll say this lastly as I get ready to close. When we move on to verse 11, we see that he wants us to be partakers in his holiness. Verse 11 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. We know that we're positioned in Christ. We know that God has purposed our growth towards holiness, but lastly, God promises us fruitfulness in his time. What it means for God to father you is to lead you towards fruitfulness in due season. You worry about not fainting, he's going to take care of the fruit. We do God a disservice when we try to figure, here's what the fruit looks like. God, I want this kind of spouse, I want two well-behaved children, one dog, picket fence, and a G-Wagon. And God is like, nah, you're going to go through bankruptcy. <laughs> I've been there, trust me. It's like, you just go through something like, God, what are you doing? I'm doing exactly what I need to do to produce fruit in you at the right time. What, what the writer is saying in verse 11, um, he's talking about how there's two mindsets. There's a mindset that says, if I'm comfortable, I must be doing good. And there's a mindset that says, if I'm being disciplined by faith, I know something's about to come out of me. Something's coming from this experience. Some of us need to, I always tell men that I talk to, start journaling. Because sometimes we miss out all the gems that God is giving us by what we're going through because we just don't think about it. And if you're a guy like me, I'm not very self-aware. So I really like, if you ask me, how are you doing? I will lie to you because I don't know how I'm doing. They go, hey, how's God been working in your life? And I'm going to lie to you again. That's why I like to talk to people outside because I don't know yet. And so I need to really work through and understand. And so what's happening in verse 11, he uses this word where he says those who have been trained by it. It's literally a word that was used for athletes, elite level athletes, when they would undress and train naked because they were trying to train with full exertion where they were going to be tired 
and drawn out and just give everything they got. And it's kind of like how in the beginning of verse 12, when, when, I mean, chapter 12, where it says that we should lay aside all the things that so easily entangle us, it, it is to say I'm training in something where I know my season is coming. It may not be my season to reap wealth, but it is my season to be fruitful in someone else's life. So those who've been trained by God's discipline or those who yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness, what is that? Well, first of all, it is a righteous life. It is a righteous life that's been trained by adversity. You want to be a valuable Christian? One of the best Christians I've ever known were people who could keep their head when everything was going wrong. You ever just know those seasoned saints who they just know how to pray when stuff is going crazy? That's what we need to become. As a father... The model that I think of is that I want to be an intercessor like Jesus is for us. That through all the training, I want to be trained to pray because that is the warfare that God requires for my household. Amen. If I want to see my wife get where she needs to get, my children get where they need to get, my daughter is about to go to college and it scares the living daylights out of me. And people always go, yeah, you better get a shotgun and keep the boys from her. No, I'm praying for the husband to come. I want a good husband for my daughter. I want her married as young as possible. Why? Because God said she should go from my covering to his. She shouldn't go out in the world and just make a lot of money and live, uh, what is it, city girls? City girls. Now, she's getting red in the face. You're like, you can't just go out there, drive out all your credit, spend all you want, run up a high body count, and then come to church and say, I messed up, here I am, Jesus. The testimony I want for my daughter is one such that she pursued godliness in every area of life despite her father's failings. So I, as I'm being trained, I want the fruit to show up in her life if it kills me. And that's the kind of fatherhood model we need to show in the church where I will lay down my interests, my preferences, my health in some ways for the sake of those that God has called me to love. And this is hard. And outside of Christ, it's absolutely impossible. And so I say this to you in closing, as God is training us and discipling us, in what ways this week did you forget your father? In what ways this week did God put you in a position where you, we should have reached out and called your dad, Abba? What's your prayer life like? I can always tell where someone is by their prayer life and how they read the Bible. In what ways this week coming up can you change that? Let me tell you, you want to know how you can definitely make it work? Get with other people and get some accountability. Be accountable in your church. Don't trust people that are unaccountable and just come and go as they want. Those are some dangerous Christians. Young ladies, you dating, date somebody, date a man that has accountability in his life. Saying it for my daughter's sake, too, but I'm acting like it's to y'all. But, but date somebody that has accountability in his life. Here's why. The sin that I wrestle with, same sin that man wrestles with, same sin every man wrestles with. And every one of us is fighting a battle nobody knows about. And every woman in here is fighting a battle that other people don't necessarily understand. And you need some people who know your battle. Not just God, because he's blessed you to be brothers in Christ. Amen? Let me pray for us.